Support for The Facing Project comes from Behavior Associates. The BAI team of professionals are dedicated to enhancing the lives of individuals with autism, with services tailored to meet the unique needs of each individual. BAI, the proud presenting sponsor of The Facing Project. Learn more at BehaviorABA.com and 765-282-8ABA. I'm J.R. Jameson. Today on The Facing Project, I sit down with debut memoirist Brittany Means at her home in Albuquerque to chat about her forthcoming book, Hell If We Don't Change Our Ways, and to have an in-depth discussion on the power of the human spirit and the written word to combat the most harrowing of childhood memories. Stay with us. Brittany Means' debut memoir, Hell If We Don't Change Our Ways, hits shelves on October 3rd, and it's already been hailed by Jeanette Walls, the author of The Glass Castle, as gut-wrenching, but at the same time, triumphant. The memoir entangles the web of Means' most painful memories while crafting a tale of self-preservation, resilience, and hope. Her childhood was a blur of highways and traumas that collapsed any effort to track time. While riding shotgun as her mother struggled to escape abusive relationships, Brittany didn't care where they were going, as long as they were together. Whether it be a roadside Midwestern motel, a shelter, or to the barn in Indiana, the noun she uses to describe the cluttered mansion her Pentecostal grandparents called home. As Brittany grew older and questioned her own complicated relationships and the poverty, abuse, and instability that enveloped her, she began to recognize that hell wasn't only the place that she read about in the Bible. It was the cycle of violence that her family was stuck repeating. Through footholds such as horror movies, neuropsychology, and strong bonds, Brittany makes sense of the cycle and finds a way to leave. Last month, I sat down with Brittany to talk about her work and the power of the human spirit and the written word to combat the most harrowing of childhood memories. Due to some sensitive content, listener discretion is advised. Brittany Means, thank you so much for joining me on The Facing Project. Hi, thank you so much for having me on. First, I want to say that I absolutely loved your memoir, and I appreciated the opportunity to be an early reader. It's always a pleasure uh, for me to be able to sit down with a fellow Ball State grad, so chirp, chirp, as we like to say in Ball State land. Um, as I read, it became clear to me that your story in the book is not only a mother-daughter memoir, but it's also a story that follows family trauma through generations. And it's also about breaking cycles. I like how you let the reader in behind the scenes, often breaking the fourth wall, and in many ways preparing us for and guiding us on the journey. Why do you approach the story in this way? Yeah, Um a big part of it comes from the religious upbringing and being told like you're always being watched and judged in a way that's like you don't get to interact or have any say in that judgment. Mm -hmm. um, and then another part of it is I'm really aware that I have a story that that people might find like juicy and want to like lean into the tragedy and just read it for that. And I don't have any real disdain. I think that's human to rubberneck a little. Um, but I... I really wanted to step in as much as I could and be like, this isn't just a juicy story about some sad things that happened to a person. Um, didn't want people to walk away from the book and be like, that was interesting. Now I'm going to go watch a Lifetime movie or something. I wanted them to come away um, 
thinking about the story, not just because it lingered with them, but because it made them think about the themes in it. Mm -hmm. And it is a road trip in many ways, because you spent so much of your youth in a car with your mom. And so it was fitting and on brand in many ways to say, this is the journey and, and here's where we're headed. And there is a lot of generational trauma, as we were just talking about a moment ago, built into the story, uh, your own lived experience. And, um, I, you know, I, I thought it was an, a, a great way to approach it as well, where you're setting somebody up to know what's going to happen before they dive into it without giving a traditional trigger warning. Um, yeah. yeah. So I thought it was kind of a unique way to do that. There is an excerpt that I would like you to read, if you're willing to do that, about your grandfather and life at the barn, that as I was reading, I was like, yes, this precisely <laughs> captures generational trauma. Do you mind reading that? I would love to. All right. It's about my grandpa. You could see all of this play out on the slides. Flip through fast enough and you can watch my grandfather grow from a frightened boy with a cowlick to a young man in army fatigues to a preacher. Watch the anger jump from his father to him like demons. You might be tempted to flip back and forth through the frames to pinpoint that single slide when he went from someone who needed help to someone who terrorized his family as if it isn't a sum of bad days and relaxing into coping mechanisms and excuses, as if we don't wear paths in our brains that make it hard to walk anywhere without without constantly stumbling over the old divots. An old camera can only capture so much. You can't reach back and save him, and you can't cast the anger onto a herd of pigs and send them into the sea, so put down the slides and go out onto the third floor balcony. From there, you can see all the way up the hill and all the way down the hill. You can see the birds that kept making nests under the lip of the roof, even after Grandpa installed mesh to keep them out. You can see the ashes on the windowsill from where my mother wrote her poetry and chain-smoked, sitting on a hard chair when it was too cold to go out, and the puddle of cigarette butts on the chipped white painted slats beneath us. You can see the flourishing hackberry trees and the fruitless fruit trees and the crick and the dead cars. If you relax your eyes until your vision blurs, you can see the echoes of the not-dead cars that my mother left in, and me chasing them all the way down to the highway each time with my arms outstretched, screaming, take me, take me with you, don't leave me here, until the times I didn't chase them anymore. You can see into each neighbor's yard and down to the animal bodies on Indiana 67. You might see the memory of a girl balanced on the banister, getting ready to, bending to, her body letting her jump. Underneath your feet, there's a trap door. You can take the ladder down to the second floor balcony, walk down the stairs and leave. I can't. I'm always here, but I'll follow you to the road and point to the spot where Puzzums finally got hit by a car and my grandfather gathered her body in a sheet and carried her to a special hole in the earth. And it was the hardest any of us ever saw him cry. I love how you use basically the slides and the photographs that your grandparents um, kept in their homes, tucked away in boxes and shoe boxes and all of that. I love how you played with that uh, to really unpack the generational trauma and help the reader see that sometimes what we see on the surface is not always what the story 
actually is. Um, and you discuss emotional and physical trauma that happened to you uh, by adults and other children. Mm-hmm. And you express quite well that hurt children can grow up to be hurt adults. And growing up around angry adults can make us jump, even in times when they're happy and maybe only shouting with glee. And I could relate to that so much when I'm thinking about um, some folks in my life. How did writing these scenes help you process your own trauma? Yeah. Um, I think one of the best things it did for me was help me understand people better. Um, people in my family told a lot of stories that, you know, you, you could hear them and understand like, oh, so that's why you do this thing, or that's why you feel really strongly about this. Um, but it's one thing to to just know something and then it's another to really sit with it and like absorb what it actually means and how it led to the way they treated you. Um, I think there's this idea that when you're healing from a harm that someone did you, that forgiveness always has to be part of it. Um, and I, I think it's important for some people and everyone has a different definition of forgiveness. And for me, it just didn't feel like I don't need anyone to tell me they're sorry or try to make amends. Um, in part because for a lot of relationships, it will just never happen. Uh, for me, I think understanding, even if it doesn't heal anything or change or fix anything, just having the context made me feel a little, I don't know, better and loving to myself and other people. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I'm thinking about, as I read your memoir, I often was thinking about my own memoir that I wrote that was a story about my father in many ways. Yeah. Um, and you're right about that. You know, the whole time I was writing, I was like, is this a love letter to myself? And in many ways, it was. Um, and it was pretty cathartic to get that out on the page. And it sounds like that may have been the same experience for you, that it wasn't really about forgiving anybody who had done harm to you, but rather it was accepting yourself for who you are. Yeah, I that really came through when I was reading your book, too. Um, especially like you said, that feeling when, even if someone's just like shouting in joy, you still kind of flinch. Um, one of the things I I liked in your memoir was there's this relationship that's strained, but there's also a lot of like physical affection and smiling and, and that, that like there's joy, but those moments still felt so tense and complicated. Like every time he grabbed your shoulder or squeezed your knee, I, I felt like I could <laughs> feel my own versions of that. Like this is an act of love and I do feel it. It also feels very tense. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That's those closest to us, right? Those are the the people who are the most complicated because we see all the ins and outs of their lives that others don't often see. And that's what I loved about your book as you were so honest and bleeding on the page. What advice would you have for other writers who are processing trauma through their writing? Yeah. Um, maybe the most important thing is take care of yourself. And that's such a broad thing and easy thing to say and so much harder to actually know how to do. Um, when I was writing, um, it, it helped a lot, you know, the, the writing helped me process and take control of the narrative and all of that. It also, um, it was hard on my body. And there were days when I would keep writing, even though I knew like I need to stop and take care of myself and like eat and go on a run, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, just keep going. Um, uh, so 
definitely avoid that and learn how to really check in with yourself and, and stop on days when you know you could keep going, but like, it's really tempting to follow the inspiration, but it's maybe more important to just stop and say, I can, I can get back here, but not at the expense of being weird for the next three days because I pushed too hard. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, another part of your writing and your honesty that I enjoyed and could relate to is this idea around play and imagination. You were such an imaginative child. um, (laughs) and, And I loved that. And it makes me wonder, are you an imaginative adult in that way? Does imagination and play, does it help you process trauma and healing? Yeah, definitely. Um, I come from a really playful family. I I hope that came through in the book. I know a lot of it is focused on hardships, but, um, you know, sometimes it was inappropriately joking during a moment that should have been serious, Mm -hmm. but just as often it was like inside jokes, like, where are we going to hell if we don't change our ways or, um, and I, I think I would just, because of all of that, I was able to find joy and humor in moments that maybe, (laughs) maybe some people say you shouldn't, um, but it it helped me a lot. And yeah, even to this day, like I watch the chickens in the yard and I write little stories about why they're doing what they're doing. And, um, yeah, I think finding joy where you can and humor especially has been super important for me. Yeah. And that came through. There were moments where, um, uh, you know, your mom would use the F word in really playful ways. And it reminded <laughs> yeah. me of so many people I grew up around in rural Indiana, which I know you're from rural Indiana um, yeah. as well. And so there were moments where there was a traumatic scene that was followed by something that would make me laugh. And then I would stop and think, wait, should I be laughing? Should I not be <laughs> laughing? But it was a part of the journey. And I feel like that's how lives are lived, right? Um, lives are not just... Uh, linear and they're not just one way or the other. They really are twisted stories that um, sometimes are traumatic and sometimes include humor. So that yeah. that play I really um, enjoyed. And we'll talk more about your mom here in a moment, but we need to take a quick break. You're listening to The Facing Project with J.R. Jameson, and I'm joined today by author Brittany Means, and we'll be back after a short message from our sponsors. Support for The Facing Project comes from Behavior Associates. BAI provides behavior-based interventions to all individuals with behavior programming needs to enhance their quality of life. Behavior Associates is the proud presenting sponsor of The Facing Project. Learn more at behavioraba.com and 765-282-8ABA. You're listening to The Facing Project with J.R. Jameson, and I'm joined today by author Brittany Means, whose forthcoming memoir, Hell If We Don't Change Our Ways, comes out on October 3rd. For those just tuning in, before the break, we were talking about generational trauma and healing. It's true that we live in a trauma-filled world with cycles that continue to repeat, but so much has been done over the past few years to help people heal, to do the work, and unpack their trauma. But it's also a privilege to be able to do that. And that's something that I've noticed as I wrote my my own work, and I read early reviews of that too, thinking about um, places of privilege and also healing. From your own opinion, what do you think about that for folks who may not have access to works around healing or understanding the process of healing? How do we access provide access for those folks? Yeah. 
Um, I mean, aside from all of the huge structural <laughs> boundaries to just widespread care and wellness, uh, I think on an interpersonal level, understanding is such a huge step. Um, like when we can look back and and see like this is how this person became so defensive or passive aggressive or reactive um not only helps us like recognize those tendencies in ourselves and choose other paths but also uh i think it helps us be a little more compassionate like i have certain family members who are so passive aggressive <laughs> and when they try it on me i know what they want is maybe a fight because that's how they know like we love each other because we have big feelings and instead of reacting that way i'm I just take things they say at face value, even if I know it's supposed to be passive aggressive. Um, and, and just also meeting people where they are. Like I have a lot of, especially older, more Southern loved ones who will probably never go to therapy, which for me was so important. And sometimes I think like if they would just go, but the reality is they very, very likely will not. And so I try to take what I learned in therapy, if it seems applicable to them and just make suggestions in the language they understand. So if they're being really like self-effacing or something, or if they're like, oh, I was so stupid, I, I shouldn't have done this. And now this thing is happening. I'm like, if I had done that, would you be calling me stupid right now? And they're like, no, usually. Yeah. And then I'm like, well, then, then love yourself the way you love me. Um, that kind of thing, which, you know, is, is frustrating when they're limits and especially knowing we have these larger structural issues that prevent people from really getting the help that they might need um, mm. yeah yeah and, and the appropriate access i think what you said about reactiveness is so spot on um i you know i too grew up in a pretty large rural family uh, i was the one of the first in my family to go to college and, and graduate from college. And uh, and I've done my own healing as well through therapy, and, and I'm thankful for that. But I do find in situations sometimes people want a reaction when I'm in mm -hmm. some of my old spaces and knowing how to manage that. Uh, I think what you said is so spot on around that, but showing that we still love the people around us. And in many ways, I feel like I understand people more because of my own healing that I've done. Do you feel the same way? Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Um, it, it, my grandma always said like, uh, you get more flies with honey than vinegar. And sometimes that's really frustrating to use, especially when you know, like objectively, I am right in this situation, but that's, that's not going to get you anywhere. So like if I go to like a Christmas party and one of my uncles is like, how about that Trump? <laughs> yeah. I, I'm like, you want me to have a big quarrel with you here in front of everybody but instead i'm just like you look really good in that color i love you i'm glad to see you yes. <laughs> and you know there are moments when maybe you do fight back because you're just like i'm sick of this i can't today um but sometimes you just tell them their eyes look pretty <laughs> yeah it's about the energy right if we if it's mm -hmm. a moment where we feel like we want to expend the energy um to have those conversations i think you're so so right about that in so many ways. Um, your mom is a complicated character in the book, but you paint her with a good deal of nuance, um, covering everything we pretty much just talked about, which at times made me angry with her, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> but I also felt bad for her. And I even had moments where I thought she would be fun to hang out with. <laughs> 
When you were a teenager, you moved out and you moved in with the Smiths, whose son had been your boyfriend. There's a scene where the matriarch of the family, Diana, and your mom are having an exchange in the Smiths' front yard. And you were worried about Diana and the neighbors looking down on your mom. And you said, she's a good mother. I wanted to tell them she's just lost. Good and bad aren't mutually exclusive. Once you realize this, how did your perspective of your mom shift? Yeah. Um, This is such a good question because I had to go through um, just a period of time where I was mad at her. It wasn't very long, but it was like, um, I think anger can be a really important step in healing. Like once you get angry for yourself, you know, like I love myself enough to be mad for me. Um, and in that time, I think, uh, I had to flatten her a little bit in my mind to get mad for myself. And maybe it's not a necessary step, but it's a step I went through. Um, but yeah, as I got older and especially as I started, I think you talk about this in your book too, like you reach the age that your parents were when they had you or when mm-hmm. you had a certain interaction and you start to think like, wow, I, I was like seven and she was like trying to find housing and get me into school. <laughs> and mm-hmm. she was like 26. That's wild. Um, yeah. but, but yeah, I think the, the more I worked on the book, the more I, I started to understand like, like I, I always knew like hurt people hurt people and again that's an easy concept to be like yeah i know that but then you really sit with it and you start writing out someone's story and you get to the point where you actually feel it and really understand it and uh there were a lot of calls <laughs> with her <laughs> where maybe we didn't even talk about the subject of the book we just i was like just tell me about your day please yeah some of that is uh, the writing process, as we talked about earlier, is a, is healing. Um, but at the same time, it helps us understand those we're writing about in a different way, right? It creates this sense of of empathy. Um, has your mom read the book? No, I have offered multiple times. When I was still drafting, I was like, if there's anything you want me to like take out or talk about differently, like I'm giving you veto power. And she, she didn't, it's not that she didn't want to read it. She was just like, it's your story. And I know I didn't always make the best decisions. So basically like it's in your court, um, which, mm-hmm. which was like kind of my dream conversation. But again, as I say in the book, like we can have a really good conversation. And then the next time we talk, it's like it never happened. Um, yeah. So, so I've offered a few times and each time she's just like, no, no, I'll wait until it comes out. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> Which is ner- nerve wracking on your end. And, and I can yeah. feel that because I actually had a similar situation with my dad in my book. Along the way, I offered to allow him to read passages to, um, you know, validate that what I was saying was the right memory, the way that I had remembered it. And he said, oh, no, no, I want to wait until it comes out and read it when everyone else does. But on my end, I was so nervous as I was heading 
heading toward the publication date of what does this mean when my dad actually does um, read this story, but he actually did end up loving it. And he said what your mom said, right? That it's, it's your story and it was your story to tell. And I feel like you set up the memoir really well to let the reader know that in the beginning, where you played in the introduction with your grandfather burning a board that had some baby possums on it, right? And Mm -hmm. that there could have really been two ways that that version of the story could have been seen or told. And I just thought that was such a creative and spot on way to say that we all are characters in our own story, but what we Mm -hmm. feel and remember in the moment maybe isn't always the same. And this is your story to tell from your memories that are vastly um, different. But I thought it was a fantastic way of setting up the whole book. Um, And I feel like you did a great job of painting your mom um, with nuance right? Oh, um, <laughs> with, with full honesty. So I think that, that all of that was just spot on. Um, you know, re- going back to this religious symbolism conversation that we've kind of danced around a little bit, um, it plays an actual pretty strong role in your book, as does religious trauma. I've experienced this myself, and I still struggle at times to make sense of it all. And it left me wondering, where are you today with religion and spirituality? Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm definitely, I wouldn't call myself a Christian. Um, I, that's kind of a struggle because there are a lot of people in my life who Christianity is like how they make sense and make meaning and purpose. And I try to meet a good middle ground between respecting that that's, that's how they, again, make sense of their life. And I think there are elements of it that are still harming them and harming me. Um, but for myself, uh, I really try to, I more like spiritual than religious. I think anything that feels too like organized or close to Christianity and like a ritual kind of way starts to, uh, starts to make me uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, and that's something again, I'm trying to work on cause I'm like not everyone who's spiritual in an organized way is Christian and and I have to think through some of that mm. kind of garbling here. Um, but my main thing is um, I think of people like collective and I think the ways we all take care of each other and understand each other and take care of ourselves is kind of my spiritual focus. If mm. I'm not sure how much sense that makes, but yeah, like, collectivism and humanism is my bag these days. It makes absolute sense to me. Uh, my my husband grew up completely atheist, uh, you know, no, um, no upbringing in, in the church or, or anything like that. Um, I, mine was different. Mine was more like yours, where uh, I grew up in a pretty religious family. Um, and, and now as an adult, I find myself going down this path of spirituality, but not necessarily organized religion. And it mm-hmm. makes me wonder, and I don't have an answer to this, and, and you may not as well, but it does make me wonder, for those of us who did grow up in organized religion, despite the trauma that we experienced, those seeds of spirituality never really leave us. And in many ways, we yeah. are always searching for the answer, right? Yeah. Yeah. 
It, which kind of leads me to my next question around the searching for home. That's a major theme in your story from being a child and being on the road to finding um, a place at the barn somewhat, but then finding a place at the Smiths um, and then eventually going to college. Uh, you found, you've now found a home in Albuquerque with your partner, Jeff, and your cat, baby Jeff, and also some chickens. What does that feel like? Um, it feels amazing. Like sometimes I'm just driving around and I see the mountains and like, I keep waiting for a day where I'm not just like gobsmacked, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but every single time I look at them, I'm like, Whoa, I just, I get to live here. I get to see these. Um, we can see them from our bedroom window. So I wake up in the morning and roll over and, Stephen Wing, the rooster is screaming and I watch the sunrise over the mountains and I'm like, this is my life. That's wild. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's an amazing feeling to find that place of home with a partner, with, with a pet and having that safe space, right? It becomes mm-hmm. our safe space in so many ways. And I wish you so much joy in your life in Albuquerque. Brittany Means, it has been a pleasure to sit down with you. Thank you so much for joining me on The Facing Project. Thank you. Brittany Means' forthcoming memoir, Hell If We Don't Change Our Ways, releases on October 3rd from Zibby Books and is available everywhere books are sold. Learn more about her work at BrittanyMeans.com. Thanks again to Brittany Means for taking the time for the interview and to the entire team at Zibby Books for championing stories and providing an advanced reading copy of Hell If We Don't Change Our Ways. To listen to past episodes of this program, visit indianapublicradio.org slash The Facing Project. From there, you can subscribe to the podcast where you'll get episodes of The Facing Project delivered to your device each month. Or just ask your smart speaker to play The Facing Project on NPR. Listeners can contribute stories or volunteer to share the stories of others that may appear on the show. More information at facingproject.com. To continue the conversation about this episode, find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Facing Project. The Facing Project is recorded at Indiana Public Radio at Ball State University in beautiful and wonderful Muncie, Indiana. It is produced by the amazing producer and audio engineer extraordinaire, Sean Ashcraft. The show is distributed nationally through PRX. I'm your host, J.R. Jameson, and until next time, I wish you the courage to share your own story and the empathy to listen to others. Support for The Facing Project comes from Behavior Associates. The BAI team of professionals are dedicated to enhancing the lives of individuals with autism, with services tailored to meet the unique needs of each individual. BAI, the proud presenting sponsor of The Facing Project. Learn more at BehaviorABA.com and 765-282-8ABA.